This is Luke 4, 31 through 37. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. Amen. Amen. Church, you may have a seat. If you have a copy of the scriptures, would you grab it and open up to the the scripture we just heard read over us? We are continuing. If you're new with us, welcome. Uh, Glad that you are here on this long weekend uh, that we have. We're going to be in Luke 4, as we just heard read, 31 uh, through 37 as we continue through the gospel of Luke. It's going to take us some time to get through it, uh, but we're taking our time because uh, we're not in any rush. And so we are, uh, we're taking just the, the long way through the gospel of Luke and trying to mine out all of the beautiful truths uh, that are in this wonderful book for us that we can see and savor and treasure the Lord Jesus Christ through. Well, um, a few months ago, uh, one of my friends, uh, I think he's serving back in the kids, Andrew, uh, he was talking to me and he said something. He goes, you know, that just hits different. I was like, what? What does that mean? And apparently that's like what the kids are saying these days. Y'all remember the old Letterman thing? He goes, well, the kids are saying this these days. There's all these new slang. There's all this new vernacular. But one of these things is that just hits different. Maybe that's five years old. I'm not culturally relevant. That may, they may have been saying that for a long, long time. But uh, it, it could be like a, a bag of potato chips, like a new style. It could be like a new song, I think. I'm trying to get the gist of it. But when things hit different, they just have this certain power, this certain emphasis, right? It, it evokes a different feeling or a different experience as you hear it or as you see it or as you experience it. It just hits a little different, right? Anyone heard that? Is that true? Is that kind of a thing? Yeah. The young people. Any uh, old folks like me are like, never heard that. I have no idea. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, good. Thank you for your participation in that. They're like, this is new. He doesn't usually ask us questions. Um, Well, you might say right here in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, on this day, as he walks into this synagogue in this new place, it's going to hit a little different, okay? There's something happens, something different, something is set apart here. Um, He is, he says something, something happens in this text that we just heard read that is very different, um, as the kids would say, right? And all of the people that experience this are amazed at what? At Jesus's authority and his power. They're amazed at his authority and his power. It's, it's set apart from all the other religious leaders. It's set apart from all the other teachers that they were used to hearing from, that they were used to um, uh, getting taught from. So he's not a philosopher. He's not a moral teacher. He's, he's more than that. It's, it's different. And he's come among them in this synagogue, and this ministry struck them. It, it's different. And Luke showed us last week that Zach, as Zach just referenced in the last, uh, the last passage that we are in, Jesus walks into his hometown, if you remember, and he starts teaching and he tells about who he is and he reveals his identity and, the, and, and he's essentially rejected. They don't want to listen to him. They're amazed. But at the end of the day, when he calls them out, they have a very negative reaction to his preaching and to his teaching. And now he's in Capernaum. And we see a positive reaction to the ministry of Jesus. So last week, the sermon that Jesus preached in Nazareth, he came, he told us to bring good news to the poor. Remember, he quotes from the scroll. He opens the scroll in Isaiah and he says, this is who I am. He says, I've come to preach good news to the poor, to liberate the oppressed, to set captives free. And now we get to see something amazing as he moves into this new town and he's preaching again. We get to see this passage that he told us about who he was lived out and enacted in their midst. So he preached the message of who he was, and here in this passage, we'll see that lived out and worked out in the midst of these people. He's going to set captives free. Um, 
And so he's going to move on, if you will, from the message of Jesus, Luke is, as he's chronicling the ministry of Jesus. And now he's going to show us the mission of Jesus fully enacted and actualized in the midst of God's people that he just preached about in the last place. So what did he preach about? Well, here we're going to see what does it look like for Jesus to set prisoners free, to set captives free? What does it look like for Jesus to bring healing? As we go on in these stories, we're going to encounter next week someone struck with a fever. They're ill, and he's going to bring healing. He's going to bring wholeness, and ultimately he's going to bring salvation to those who are in desperate need of a Savior. So what does it look like for Jesus' authority and his power and his grace to be put on display? It looks a little bit like it did this day in Capernaum. It's an amazing passage. And everywhere Jesus goes, as we continue to follow him in his ministry, people are transformed. They're not just taking in just cool information. They're not just taking in little nuggets that uh, might be helpful or little life hacks that they can, you know, jot down on a note card. They're transformed. Their lives are changed. Their worldviews are reshaped. And they are radically changed from the inside out because of his power and his authority. And he continues to do that today, church. That's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus is still on the move, just like he was then. He is moving today. And so these events that we read about are great. And when we read them, church, I think Luke is writing them in such a way. Remember, at the very beginning, many, many weeks ago, he's writing us so that we would have certainty of who Jesus is. So he's writing this, not just so that we'd read a story, but we would be confronted with the reality and the truth of who Christ is, and we have to do something with it. We have to do something with it. You can't just hear it and walk away. Or you can't edit it and change it as some have tried to do, or some in our day and age just dismiss his authority and power altogether and say, oh, those are just stories, those are uh, antiquated, those aren't real. And when you have a Jesus that is edited, that is dismissed, and that has his power and authority stripped away, you have a Jesus that is not born of a virgin, as Luke has told us through this gospel story, who did no miracles as we are witnessing here and we will continue to witness in his ministry, who did not die a substitutionary death and did not rise from the dead. And consequently, when you have that Jesus, just a Jesus that said kind of nice things and was a nice person and has some nice things to teach us, when you have a Jesus that's just sort of a moral teacher or a moral, moral principle giver, That's a Jesus that is not worth living for at the end of the day, and certainly, church, not worth dying for, as many, many have. And so we pray today, and we come to this text today, that God might open our eyes, and we might receive him for who he is, and we would do something with it. We wouldn't just take it and walk away and go home and say, nice talk, but we would be confronted with the message and the ministry of Jesus and we would grapple with it. And we'd have faith in the one that has come, the one in whom all of our hope rests on, the one in whom heals, the one who sets captives free, the one who liberates the oppressed, the one who has come to bring good news to the poor. And he does all of these things, church. That we would receive him as who he says he is and we would follow him where he leads. That's what we are to do when we are confronted with the text, when we're confronted with the living, active word of God. So first of all, we see in this passage, just in the few verses that we're going to be in this morning, we see his authority and we see his power and his teaching. So Jesus, he's already been teaching. Uh, Luke tells us that he's been teaching a lot more, not just in these two places, but these are just two examples of where we have him teaching. Last week we saw him in Nazareth, and now he goes down to Capernaum, right, into the city of Galilee. Capernaum was a small town. It's uh, estimated that there was about 600 to 1,000 people that would have been living there. It was essentially a fishing village on the coast. So it's a small town. 
um, a fishing village. And today, you can actually go there today, I'm told, as I've read. I've not actually been there. I hope to one day. But there is a synagogue that was built right on top of the ruins of this first century synagogue that Jesus actually preached and had this story recorded in. And, and right across the streets uh, from this synagogue are the remains of Peter's mother-in-law's house. So this is a real place. These are real people. These are real things that are recorded. Remember, Luke wrote these down through eyewitness accounts. These are not just stories. They're not just uh, cute things that happen. These things took place in history. The living, real Jesus walked into this synagogue and delivered this message and did these things long, long ago. And to this day, you can go right there. And so in this small town, right off the coast, Jesus is here in Capernaum in the synagogue teaching. And what strikes the people, what lands on them, what hits a little different is his authority. His authority. They were astonished, verse 32, because his teaching possessed authority. Mark's gospel, uh, all the gospel accounts actually record this event. They record this miracle that happens. Mark adds in the parallel account that he taught as one with authority, not as the scribes. So he kind of juxtaposes Jesus' teaching to that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So our verse, verse 32 says, and he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. His teaching is set in contrast to the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees who would have done the preaching in the synagogues. Their teaching was based primarily on oral tradition. Um, so there was a chain of stories. There was, there was a chain of, of, of teachings that would have been passed down in, in, in their tradition in the Pharisees. And they would have, and they would have taught and they would have, they would have talked about the authorities that came before them and quoted them and taught them through oral tradition. And here the people recognize that something is different about the way that Jesus is teaching and preaching. That's because he spoke as God himself. He spoke uh, as God making absolute claims on their lives. Remember last week it says, and this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, I'm this one. I'm this one you've been waiting for. The scribes spoke about the authorities that came before them. Jesus spoke with authority. His words had authority. And Jesus' authority was not a derived authority. His authority was rooted in his identity that he talked about last week. He himself is the author of life. He is the one that spoke the very cosmos into existence. He is the one on which the ground that we are on today is the one that upholds it and holds it all together. And he is in this little synagogue and his voice and his words carried this unparalleled authority and they were struck by it, all that heard. And if we would have been there, um, we would have not left saying, nice talk. That was a neat little talk. Let's go grab lunch. You know, it would have shook us. It had authority and it had power and we would have been gripped with it. So we see his authority and his teaching. Secondly, we see Jesus' authority over the demonic. So here we have this very striking story. Now this, as we get into Luke and as we continue, this is the first of 21 miracle stories in the Gospel of Luke. The first of 21 miracle stories in the Gospel of Luke. And I think it's significant. Um, I think the, why this is placed here, why he begins teaching about this is significant. And this is a story to use modern day vernacular of an exorcism. Um, Ash and I recently went and saw a movie. They're actually remaking that old movie. Do not watch the trailer. It was the most terrifying, horrific thing. I, I as a grown-up, I'm like, I, I can't even look at this. It was horrible, right? But this is the first story that we're confronted, the first miracle, if you will, of Jesus casting out a demon out of a person. And I think Luke places this story right here at the very beginning after he's rejected in his hometown and he comes down to Capernaum and he's, and he's in this synagogue because on a, um, 
It's, it's, it's a micro picture. It's a small picture of what Jesus came to do on a macro large scale. It's a micro window, this one story of what Jesus came to do at the very beginning on a large scale. He's showing his power and he's showing his authority. And what did Jesus come to do? Luke puts it right up front so we are confronted with it. Well, one of the things that Jesus came to do was to destroy and abolish the work of the devil. He came to destroy the works of darkness. He came to shine the bright light of the hope of the gospel in the very darkest of places that we might have hope. And so as Jesus is in this little synagogue teaching, his sermon is interrupted by an individual who is possessed by a demon. Striking story. And Luke underscores a couple of different times how bad it really is for this guy because he has this repeated emphasis on uh, this term. He's saying, by an unclean demon, an unclean demon. An unclean demon. It means, in other words, or an unholy demon. Now, side note, we don't know exactly. We were speculating this with the, with the team as we were walking through the liturgy planning earlier this week. We don't know if this guy was just like sitting in there like kind of we're sitting in here and no one really knew or if ever it was clear that there was something going on with this guy. We're not sure. We're not given those details. But whatever the case was, either he was just kind of hanging out there and he was just doing his religious thing and no no one knew about it or it was very evident that there was something going on, there was oppression going on. The only thing that helped him was the authority and power of the words of Jesus. The word of Jesus. And that's what happens when Jesus shows up somewhere. That's why we just sang the song that we just sang about. The breath of God, just breathe on us. We need to hear from you, Lord. You are the one that we want. More songs and more sermons is not what we need, but we only need them should they usher us into the very word of God and the presence of God that we may hear from you and that we may be changed by you as a people together. And so when Jesus shows up, his power is holy, it is pure, and it is clean, and it restores things back to their right order. Where there is chaos and where there is oppression, he comes and his word and his power sets captives free and restores things that were broken and undone. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. And so there is a collision here in this church service, if you will, that Jesus is in proclaiming and preaching. There is a collision of the clean, holy, righteous son of God and an unclean man who is possessed by an unclean demon. Let's look at it. Verse 33 and 34. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out in a loud voice. Now let me stop there. If you're using the ESV, and I believe it's here, uh, yes, where are we? And he cried out in a loud voice. Go to the next verse for me. Ha! We were sitting in there talking about this as a team. We're like, what? Ha? Is he laughing? This is like, is it like a defiant? Is, is it a defiance? Like, why is he laughing? And why is it just one ha? Like, what's, what's going on here? And so... Some translations render it ha, or uh, other translations, Jelana was reading out of the the NIV, which was helpful as we were trying to get down to the, the meat of what's happening here and what's going on here. But most of our translations, or many of them, render it this way. And it's not really written that way in the Greek. It's an epsilon alpha, or EA. The word ha would be a term of defiance almost. And so when I first read it, I was like, is the demon bowing up? Ha! Like, I got you. It's Jesus. I'm gonna, we're, gonna, we're about to duke it out here. It kind of read that way to me a little bit, except when you start reading a little bit further. But the Greek, it's E-A. And so the way I think it would be better translated is, ah! They te- that's what they teach you in seminary. That's the correct... <laughs> Uh, Greek pronunciation. It's a, ah! 
right? For some reason they did a ha, but I think it's, it's meant to be like, an, like alarming. It's meant to be shocking. For some reason they rendered it a laugh. But I don't think that captures the essence. It's a ha! Ah! This demon is freaking out. Jesus, the son of God, just walked in. And he knows he's in trouble. And it's not a ha, a defiance, it's a shriek of terror, knowing whatever this one says, I have to do exactly what he says. There's no fight here at all. He will lose, and he knows that. If you were drawing a cartoon, it would be the bubble, and it would be like a scream with a lot of like, ah! Like afterwards, right? We, we like a lot of Peanuts comics in our household. So that, that was the word picture I got here. And that's what he does. So this is not some demon bowing up, saying like, oh, I'm gonna, we're going to duke it out here, like a Wild West kind of thing. This is a terrified spirit. And he sees Jesus, and he knows whatever this one says, I must obey. <clears throat> and here we have why. Why does he feel that way? The text tells us in verse 34, he says, uh, he goes on, he says, what have you, what have we to do with you? Or what are you going to do with us? He asks that question. Like, he just is asking Jesus because he knows whatever Jesus has come to do, that's what's going to happen. It's, it's, it's a play on words in the original language. Literally, it means what to me and thee. What to me and thee, Jesus of Nazareth? It's a play on words like, uh, whatever you are going to say is what we're going to have to do because you have all power and you have all authority. We have nothing in common. You are clean and I am unclean. And the Holy One that brings light is invading the darkness and it will, the darkness cannot hide. It's exposed. What to me and thee, Jesus of Nazareth? And then he identifies what scares him so bad, what makes him shriek, what terrifies him, what makes him jump. Holy one of God, you have come to destroy us. He just shows all of his cards. I'm so terrified because you are the holy one of God. And you have come to destroy us. Now that's the, the, the word here, get the meaning of that gets to this idea of, of totally bringing something down to nothing. If it, if, it were, if it were given in context of a city and a natural disaster, it would be the city would be brought down to rubble, nothingness, nothing left standing, total destruction. And that's what this demon says of Jesus when he confronts him. And Jesus rebukes him. And he says, be quiet, come out of him. And the demon came out of him in their midst. And he came out with, without doing the man any harm. And amazement came upon everyone in that room. And they all began discussing this with each other. They began talking about the power of God, the power of this one Jesus, the authority with which he spoke, the fact that unclean spirits obey him and come out. And words started going and, and filtering out into all the surrounding districts. What's interesting to me is that the demon here confesses that which is true about Jesus. And often we're going to see that in the Gospels as we continue on, is that demons actually have uh, pretty good theology. They see Jesus, they know exactly who he is, and they know what he's capable of, and they know what he's come to do. And I think it's instructive for us, church, because it's one thing to have a confession of truth, it's another thing to have a confession of faith. You can know true things about Jesus, but not possess the reality of the faith and saving work that he offers by placing your heart, mind, and soul all in on him. It's not just about knowing that which is true about Jesus. It's receiving all of who he is. Um, faith. 
We need a possession of faith more than just a profession of truth because even the demons give professions of truth. And so this guy is tormented. And I suppose for, the, for a little bit of our time, we need to speak a little bit about demon possession because it's right here. And there's about to be a movie that's coming out in October that I strongly discourage anyone from going to see because it looks horrific and terrifying. Um, but culturally, it's, we're going to be seeing some of this, right? Um, well, this person is dominated by the spirit of a demon. He's tormented. He's left powerless. And I think as we look at these and as we're going to encounter some more of these as we journey through um, the gospel according to Luke is I think we need to distinguish it from cases of insanity or mental illness or sickness. So I think this is a certain phenomenon or a, uh, a special phenomenon present during the ministry of Jesus. Uh, not exclusive to only the ministry of Jesus, but you certainly see this, this uptick and this type of activity uh, through the ministry of Jesus as he walks and as he encounters different things. And I think the reason we see demonic possession sort of uptick in, in the... Um, and the way in which it's handled and the confrontation that Jesus sees it and encounters it in the New Testament Gospels. Um, we also see it a little bit in Acts, so uh, it's also in there. And so we, we do see an uptick. We do see Jesus dealing with demonic possession. We do see Jesus talking about it. But it's not, there's, there's people like, oh, there's demons everywhere in the Bible. They're kind of like on the bandwagon of uh, blaming everything on a demon, right? And so there's kind of that, that camp. Well, demons aren't everywhere in the Bible. They are in the Bible, and the Bible speaks to them, and there's certainly an uptick of encounters that we experience through the ministry of the Lord Jesus as he's walking out his ministry, but they're not all over the place, uh, just holistically, biblically speaking. They're in the ministry of Jesus particularly elevated because I think that the demonic world, the unseen world that is very real and is very true and is ever-present that we often don't think about, realize that the kingdom of darkness is under grave threat. And they want to let all hell break loose on the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus has to deal with it. And he deals with it in power, and he deals with it in authority, because he can. And so here is Jesus. Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil. And so it should be no shock to us that the first miracle we see in the Gospel of Luke is Jesus casting out a demon from a man who was under oppression. Now, I know it's if you're sort of a modern thinker or you're... Uh, maybe new to church or someone invited you or you're just like, this is kind of hard for me to accept. This is a hard pill to swallow, like demons. And are, are we really preaching? Are you really talking about demon possession at church today in this day and age? Like, why are we discussing this? It seems so antiquated. It seems a little hocus pocus. So you, you, you may be uh, grappling with that. Because um, it's hard for us because we can't oftentimes classify it, right? And we want to sort of have a category for everything, but not that. We just want to dismiss it if we can. Um, but at this point, we see in verse 36 that Jesus has authority over the demon. That's clear. And he simply rebukes the demon, and the demon is healed, or, and the man is healed. He rebukes the demon, the man is healed. It says the demon had, 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 was thrown down in their midst and came out of him, having done no harm to the man. And you notice that Jesus in this, so he has a category for this. There's a biblical worldview that has a category for demonic oppression. Jesus is talking about it right here, so I think we have to have a category for it as well. But when Jesus deals with this demon, when he deals with it with his words, there's no like... There's no hocus pocus. There's no incantation. There's no bizarre practice that happens. 
like the movies that are about to come out that we're going to see that has all sorts of Hollywoodized uh, renderings and views of how this all might look and they glorify it or they sensationalize it. Jesus just comes in with no hocus pocus, no mumbo jumbo, no summoning powers as may have been custom in that day then, as some commentators would say, but at the word of Jesus, his simple word. The man is healed and the demon is gone. And notice, he can do him no harm. And I think the story illustrates vividly for us the confrontation that happens in spiritual warfare. That there is a level of violence between light and darkness. And it's happening in the unseen world. It's happening right now. Uh, It's real. And so church, whenever we minister in the gospel, whenever we proclaim the goodness of Jesus and we're we're preaching and proclaiming the good news of the gospel and all of who Jesus is, we should not be surprised by opposition. We should not be surprised that there is, in fact, spiritual warfare. There is an unseen kingdom that's at war with each other in light and darkness. Jesus can see it clearly. Often we cannot And when we represent and when we lock arms and we hold up and we talk about and we live out the values of the kingdom of God as God's people living as aliens and strangers in this world, um, it is no, should be no surprise that the world holds antithetical values toward the kingdom of God oftentimes. And it should be no surprise that there can be spiritual conflict that lies behind all that we are trying to live for and do oftentimes in a world that doesn't see and understand. And so we as a church, it's not an us versus them, but we have an opportunity to speak of and proclaim the goodness of all of who Jesus is that they might see and understand and experience the only one who can cast out darkness with a word of power. But there is an unseen war going on, the scripture talks about. And consequently, as a result of Jesus' healing of this man, these people are amazed. They've never seen power like this. And so in verse 37, they begin to spread the word of who Jesus is. And his fame begins to spread. And more and more people begin to know who he is and what he's all about. And they hear rumors of what he can do. And so I think we can take away a few things from this. I think this event shows us the reality of spiritual warfare. Most of us don't think about it. It doesn't cross our mind. We don't think about the unseen world, but it's real. There are dark forces at play right now in this room. Just like when Jesus walked into that synagogue, there was someone in that room in oppression That can happen today. It does happen today. And only by the word of Jesus and his power can we, the oppressed, be liberated from it by his good word and his good power. There is more than our eyes can see, church. Um, And yes, it does, it can seem to those that don't believe primitive and really you believe in demons and they're going to start, and then maybe they'll say, like, doesn't the Bible just attribute everything to demons? It's just like, blame everything on the demons or the demonic. Um, well, no, the Bible writers don't. They don't attribute every um, emotional or, philosoph- or, or, or psychological issue to the realm of the demonic. In fact, I think the biblical writers that we have, as, as you journey through uh, the pages of Scripture, are in a lot of ways more complex than even modern ways of thinking about things, that sort of dismiss things as, ah, that's not real. I don't have a category for that that I can see, so I'm just going to flush it away, or I'm not going to think about it, or I'm going to pretend it's not there. But the, the Scriptures have a category for it. For example, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus is doing the work of healing. And he talks about all the people that were coming to him. And he he has different categories for the way he thinks about all the people that he's going to come and bring his healing power to. And he doesn't just blanket all, oh, it's all demonic. 
No, he has a category, he has an understanding because he understands us perfectly as human beings. He created and made us. He's the maker. And so as people are coming, Jesus says, there's one who is sick, two, afflicted with disease, three, those oppressed by demons. There he has a category for it. Four, those having seizures. Five, paralytics. He doesn't dump everyone into one bucket. God knows that we're complicated individuals. And that in that complexity, there is, there is different nuance in which the words and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ needs to be applied to our hearts and minds so that we can fully walk with him. So often we reduce all of our problems to one thing, and we just have blanket statements like take a pill, get some exercise, eat more kale, do paleo, get in a group, whatever it is. We just sort of have these blanket statements. Or we might say, Everything's the work of the devil. Um, but what we should see, and I think what the scriptures see in us, is that we are complicated. It's more complex than that. But there is a category, and there is something to be said of the realm of the demonic. Jesus speaks about it. Jesus addresses it here in our text. The spiritual war is going on. And I believe that the, the, the demonic activity was intensified during the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The devil is, yes, still at work today. We just often don't notice him. We don't notice him. There's a movie quote that stuck with me. I saw it as a teenager long, long ago. It says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to make you believe he does not exist. I believe that's true. A lot of us just walk through our day and we just... Oh, just kind of hocus pocus. I don't have to think about spiritual warfare. Um, now, also, let me uh, speak to this. I don't think our situation, if you are a, a believer in Christ, if you're united with Christ in faith, if you are saved by Christ, I don't think our situations as, as Christians will be like this one who was dominated and left powerless by this demon because we have been raised with Christ in his power and his resurrection. We have that. We have that. The same power that raised Christ from the dead now is the power that you and I have. So our situation is not like this one. However, yes, I do believe the enemy is still at work in a variety of ways in this world. Now, I'm going to give a couple of examples where we see that just so we can have a mind for where the enemy and where the devil and where the scripture speaks about where he is at work in the world today. One would be in the work of evangelism. The enemy does not want you to share the gospel with those who are far from God. Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that the God of this age is blinding eyes. The God of this age is Satan, is the enemy. He is blinding the eyes of the unbelievers actively so that they will not hear and they will not respond to the gospel. So there's more going on than just trying to figure things out rationally. There is an active presence of the enemy trying to uh, blind the eyes of those that aren't believers. Our Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he tells Timothy to deal with his opponents gently, that they may, le may be led to repentance and overcome the snare of the devil. So this picture shows an unbeliever being in a snare of the devil, being trapped. A snare is something that you camouflage, that you set up to trap someone. They don't know that it's there. And when they're running and going about their way, they get trapped in it and then snared in it. And the harder you try to get out of it, the tighter the snare grips down on you. So this is a picture of evangelism, that unbelievers are in a snare of the devil, and the harder they try to fight to get away, the harder that snare ties down on their leg to keep them bound down. That's why evangelism is spiritual warfare. There's more. There's more going on than just you speaking and them hearing. There is an unseen world active against the proclamation of the gospel on those that are far from him. Or Paul says... For Christians, that ethically anger and bitterness can be tied to the work of the devil. Ephesians 4.26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin and give no opportunity to the devil. 
Likewise, Paul ties the work of the devil in 1 Timothy 3 when speaking to pastors. He says that they said they cannot get puffed up with conceit lest they fall into the condemnation of the devil. James says that our selfish ambition is from below, from the enemy, and it's demonic, and that false teaching, 1 Timothy 4, is demonic. So think about these things. The scriptures, the New Testament, just said that the, the enemy, the devil, the Satan, the father of lies, is at work today in relationships, in active trying to get those to not hear the truth of the gospel that are far from him. He's at work trying to make you prideful and me prideful. He's at work trying to make you a selfishly ambitious person. And he's at work in the world of false teaching so that you would believe the lies and not the truth that God's word gives to us. He's at work. My point is, is that spiritual warfare is a reality, church. And therefore, church, we must fight in the strength of Christ. We must trust in his power and his word that we see in this text that he can cast out the enemy. We must trust, we must take up spiritual weapons, put on the full armor of God. We must fight with weapons of prayer, the sword of the spirit to engage in this conflict. And this event shows us that the mission of Jesus, Jesus Christ, he is the one that came to reverse the curse that the enemy has for us as humanity. He came, Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil that is actively against us. It's this amazing picture. It's this micro picture of what Jesus came to do on a large scale to disarm and dismantle the power of the enemy. And at the second coming, he will deal and do away with the devil and all of his hosts once and for all. And he will win. And he will be victorious. And here at this event, at the very beginning of his ministry, the very first miracle, we get a glorious preview of what's to come. And it should swell your heart with hope. With gospel hope. It's signaling something beyond itself. Luke wants us to see Jesus' power and victory over the devil and over the enemy, that Jesus easily vanquishes this demon, and we can be assured that one day he will deal with him once and for all because Jesus is the cosmic Christ. He is the one that holds all things together, Colossians tells us. Nothing is outside of his purview, and he will deal with all the suffering, sin, pain, and death, and he has come to liberate those who are under the oppression, including demonic activity. Only Jesus can do that. And Jesus will keep having these encounters with those who are influenced by the enemy. And think of them like this when they pop up in the Gospel of Luke. They're like little skirmishes in this grand battle that point ahead to the final victory because we know who wins in the end. We have the end of the story. And we too, likewise, are many of us in a similar battle. And it should be of no surprise when those attacks come but put on the full armor of God church do not fight in your own power we need the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ he is the only one that can vanquish the enemy um, now remember as we read this Jesus sometimes we can even sensationalize what his ministry he didn't go on a healing tour he didn't go on a demon exorcism tour he was along the way in his ministry his primary purpose was to proclaim the good news and yes to set captives free and he begins doing that along the way in his mission and his ministry and he's proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come because he has arrived and he has come, and he is the person that is invading dark places with the glorious, bright light. And he is demonstrating that he has authority over the enemy, and he has authority over the unseen world, and he's come to preach good news and to set captives free. And he came that we might receive this. And so, church, as I wrap up, Let's not forget that there is a war going on. And I know that may, it's like, 
that escapes us so quickly. But there is. There's an enemy who hates us. Um, he rages, John tells us in Revelation, because his, he knows his days are short. And so he's on the move, and he's raging against the power of God, the purposes of God. And so we must pray. We must take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. We need more than just buildings. We need more than just organization. We need more than tips and tricks. We need the power from Christ. His Word has power. His Word has authority because we are in a spiritual war. Secondly, church, do not lose hope because Christ is our great liberator. That's what he came to do. Never lose hope when you feel like you are in a dark place. Never lose hope because he has come to set captives free. The light has come. Jesus has come to liberate men and women from the power of darkness and give them a taste of the world to come. And that should plant deep-seated hope and joy in us in all that Christ is going to do for us. And finally, church, we must not stop preaching the good news. We must not stop preaching the good news. Um, this is Jesus' priority when he comes on the scene. It should be our priority. The world needs to know Christ. And as we preach the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must believe that the gospel is still working and advancing and transforming and liberating captives and changing lives. He has authority over demons. He has authority over death. He has authority to forgive sins. And only Jesus has authority to grant eternal life. And he still does it today. And so we proclaim that good news with boldness and with joy and with excitement, even when the opposition comes against. So if you're a believer in Christ today, be encouraged. What a Savior we have. Don't forget his power and his purpose. We have all authority, all power. Keep proclaiming the good news of the gospel to those who are lost in darkness. If you do not know Jesus in this place, if you just stumbled in here or maybe you've been coming for years and you do not know him, you've not trusted him, you've not put your full weight and faith into this one that has come with his glorious light, what is keeping you from him today? Would you turn to him? Would you look to him? Would you believe on him? Would you have faith in him and come to him today? Be saved. Let his light invade the darkness. Only he can do it. Church, I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come back up. And let's pray together as we give thanks for who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. That even in just a few short verses, we see your power, we see your authority, we see the light of the gospel invading darkness and casting out that which is oppressed and bringing life to that which was held captive. God, I pray for anyone in this room that has never bent the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, who has never by faith come to receive the salvation that you freely offer. We ha don't have to earn it. We don't have to climb a ladder to get it. You simply offer it because you paid for it all. You died on the cross and you rose again, defeating death in the grave. And all who come by faith in him would have everlasting life. Would someone today come and receive that greatest of gift? And Lord, for those that are believers in this room, would you swell our hearts with hope in our Savior? Yes, the times can feel dark and it can feel like we don't know a way out, but we have a great hope. We have a Savior who has words of power and authority, who has taught us how to arm ourselves in a spiritual warfare, and that is with prayer. That is through the word of God, that is through the proclamation of the good news of the gospel that more might be invited into this glorious reality. So, Lord, swell our hearts with hope this morning because of all that you have done and all that you will do in Christ's name. Amen. Church, we're going to respond this morning. Um,
to our Jesus who has defeated Satan and death itself through the power of the cross. And he didn't stay on that cross. Uh, He rose again on the third day and he now is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father and all of our petitions and all of our prayers that rise up to God, he intercedes and he gets them to the Father if we are found in him. So he is real, he is alive, he is ruling, he is reigning, he has defeated the enemy, and he wins eternally forevermore. And so we're going to respond today by taking the Lord's Supper and by remembering that he won that victory through the most unlikely way, through going to a cross for you and I, by taking the penalty of death that we deserved. He died on a cross, nailed it to the cross. And by those that place their faith in him, we are now found in his glorious resurrection. And so Jesus, on that last evening at the Passover, says this. We're going to get to it in many, many months in Luke 22. Jesus says this. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will, not eat and eat, I will not eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he'd given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So church, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And if you are a believer in Christ, here today we invite you to come to the Lord's table to remember Christ's body given for us on the cross and his blood shed for us the blood of the new covenant that now binds us all together as brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the Most High. And so um, we're going to have two stations up front, and I believe we're going to have one in the back. And uh, if you've never taken the Lord's Supper with us, just a word of instruction, the bread is already cut up, and so you can just take a piece uh, of the bread from a basket, and then you just dip it in the cup. And then you can take it back to your seat. You can find a quiet place to reflect and remember the Lord Jesus. You can go back to your seat. Uh, Just respond uh, how you will. Sit with the Lord. Remember him. That's one of the commandments that Jesus tells us. Remember him. And the word remember is um, remember him on the cross. See him there. Remember the blood spilled for you. The blood of the new covenant now covers you. That you are now a son and daughter of the Most High. The one who vanquished the devil and all of his minions is now your good king. You are bound up with him. Remember him. May it produce joy and worship in you here this morning. So I'm going to ask them to come forward, those that are serving, and you come when you're ready.